Hello, everyone. This is Derek, and we're going to get to the show here in a second. A lot of you are friends of mine on Facebook, or we follow each other on Facebook, that sort of thing. And those of you who do follow me on Facebook know that I posted something last week regarding one of my cats. Now, I'm a cat person. I didn't grow up a cat person. I actually was turned into a cat person by my wife and then a cat named Cinder who showed up on our doorstep one day a little over... It's been about 10 years or so ago now. Cinder's still with us, and he's still keeping me in line as a cat person. I love being a cat person. I love my cats in particular. Over the years, we've adopted a number of cats. They're all basically rescue kitties, and one of them was named Ket. Ket was a tuxedo kitty, black and white, a little bit of a butt sometimes to the other cats in the house, but still a wonderful kitty cat, and he was my buddy. He would cuddle up with me. He would curl up with me. And I cannot tell you how many movies I've watched for Monster Kid Radio or just for fun on the Roku that I've got hooked up to the television in the bedroom. I would lay down, pat the spot next to me, say, come here, buddy. And he would jump up and curl up right there. On top of that, he was always there every time I called in sick to work and I had to you know, rest up. I had my gallbladder removed last year shortly after a pretty bad car accident. They weren't related. But I did spend a lot of time horizontal. And again, Ket stayed with me almost the entire time. He was my little buddy. Unfortunately, my wife and I lost Ket last week. He had gone into the vet for some unrelated issues to what would eventually happen that day. And he was being sedated. They were using a lower dose of sedation for him because, well, they just didn't want any problems to come up. And unfortunately, it stopped his heart. And we're not entirely sure exactly how long his heart had stopped. They did bring him back, but he was non-responsive. His brain had swelled quite a bit. And throughout the course of the day, the amazing vets at VCA Rock Creek in Aloha, Oregon, stood by him and made sure he was breathing. He had a tube down his throat and he had all the sensors hooked up, but made sure he was breathing and comfortable. Now they closed at 10 and we needed to figure out what we were going to do with Ket at that point. He was transported to another vet that had an overnight facility called Dove Lewis in Portland. He was transported by Kitty Ambulance to Dove Lewis and there he continued to receive care. However, he started to have seizures along the way and the seizures were getting progressively worse and worse. Now, again, going back to the people who follow me on Facebook, I post pictures of my cats all the time and I've posted quite a few pictures of Ket over the years, sometimes wearing a little Hawaiian shirt that Brenda found for him when we were on vacation in Chicago not too long ago, sometimes wearing a little long tie that he's got, sometimes just hanging out, and there might even be a picture or two of him and I spooning together watching a movie or taking a nap. I loved that cat. And we had to make the most difficult decision that cat owners, that a cat mom and dad can make. We had to let Cat go that night. And... It was very difficult. Of all the cats that live with us, Ket was the first one that we've had to let go that way. And it's very tough. And I really, really miss that little guy quite a bit because he was my buddy. Because he at least heard so many monster movies that I would watch for Monster Kid Radio. Because he would sit next to my computer while I was editing the show, a lot of times reaching out and just putting his paw out on my hand as I was manipulating the mouse or typing on the keyboard. For those reasons and for so many others, I'm dedicating my podcast to Ket. I love you, buddy. 
and I'm going to miss you for a very, very long time. On with the show. Kicking off episode 131 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Volcanica. It's from the band The Alder Kings. It's their EP, Who Goes There? Find out more about them over at thealderkings.com or follow the link in the show notes at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website for the podcast Monster Kid Radio, where we are always focusing on the classic and, well, sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. How's everybody doing? I'm your host, writer-producer, Derek M. Cook. want to welcome you to the show. I'm super excited. We've got a brand new person on the show before, somebody that we've talked about but have never had on the show proper. We're talking about Greg Starrett, and we're going to talk about Conrad Veidt. The man's image, I mean, it's iconic when you think of silent horror films because he was the sleepwalker, Caesar, in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920. This is probably the oldest movie that we've talked about here on Monster Kid Radio, and I am so grateful that Greg took some time out of his weekend to chat with us here on the show and to talk about Conrad Veidt. And that's what we're going to do in this episode. Primarily, we're going to focus on Conrad Veidt, who he was, what he did, that sort of thing. And then here in a couple of days, in episode 132, we're going to talk about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari proper. Now, in addition to finding links to not just the Alder Kings, but every other band that's appeared here on the show, MonsterKidRadio.net is your home for all the information you need about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There's links to our YouTube channel, our Live 365 station, Flickr album, which admittedly hasn't been updated lately, but there is a Flickr album, and there's also a link to our Facebook group, which does get updated quite a bit. It's quite active. Listeners who are on Facebook have gotten involved in conversations, started conversations over there, and I think here this week I'm going to start a new poll just for fun. I'm going to try to do that here every couple of weeks, come up with a new poll question and get some conversations started. So join the group. If you are a Facebook user, we also have a Facebook page for Monster Kid Radio. Just look up Monster Kid Radio and give us a like. The more likes we get, the better Monster Kid Radio gets out there in terms of how Facebook does their thing. Anyway, join the group. That's where the conversations are happening. You can also find our contact information over there. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. I'll go over that again at the end of the show. But before we get to the end of the show, we got to get to the middle of the show where we're going to meet Greg Starrett. We'll get to that right after this. On the grounds of Supermate's estates, there stands an ancient crumbling abode. This structure is said to contain unimaginable horrors, certain to chill your blood. Dare you enter the House of Frankenstein? You're insane. Don't tell me of it. I don't want to hear. I've changed my mind. I won't do it. In September and October, join the Baron Frankenstein and his bride. Woman. Prayer. Yes. I want prayer. 
for four bone-chilling episodes as they discuss some of your favorite classic horror films. I am Dracula, and I welcome you to my house. My name is Horus. And resurrect and dissect some of the greatest monsters in cinema history. There's an old poem. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. But don't fear, comic fans. This house is full of dusty long boxes containing your favorite superheroes' encounters with the supernatural. Oh, vampires, Batman! We're surrounded! Your horror host will unravel a harrowing adventure each episode. Now, Superman, you will feel the bite of Dracula. This house of horrors can be found at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes by searching for Supermates. Go quickly. Go! Yes! Yes, I'm going! So, grab your crucifix and wolfsbane, light your candle, and explore the blood-soaked corridors of the House of Frankenstein. We'll be expecting you. Go now. And heaven help you. Meeting adjourned. This is Peter Lorre speaking. I couldn't resist the temptation to call you. I just read of your new picture that you're to make. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thanks for your interest. Oh, I thought you were magnificent in M. And just the other night I saw your new picture, The Man Who Knew Too Much. What character are you going to play in? Oh, it's the most unusual story. You know, it's a great love drama. I am to be a half-mad scientist. I, a poor peasant have conquered science. Why can't I conquer love? <laughs> he shall be shut up when it's I who am mad. <laughs> but nobody knows that. Yes. Each man kills the thing he loves. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio, a man who co-wrote a book that appeared on the Holiday Gift Guide last December. We're talking about the book Fit for a Frankenstein. Paul McComas was one of the authors on that book, and now we've got the other author, Greg Starrett. How's it going, Greg? Very good. Thanks for having me on. Hey, I'd love to have you here on Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for taking the time today to talk to us about, well, 
a movie that I think a lot of people need to see and maybe don't give enough credit to, even though Roger Ebert calls it probably the first true horror film. We're talking about The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and its leading man, Conrad, and we talked about this off mic, Veit, Veit, Connie V, whatever you want to call him. (laughs) V-E-I-D-T. Conrad Veit. Now, Paul, who's been on the show before, introduced me to you and said that you know a lot more about this guy than I do, about Conrad Veidt. Or where are you coming from with this? Were you a fan of his? Were you a monster movie fan in the discovered cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Well, I, I'm a monster kid, like, uh, you know, the name of the show. And if you think back to uh, especially famous monsters of Filmland, for example, they were always giving you stills of a lot of silent movies. Jamie Sr., Conrad Veidt. And I was always intrigued by those uh, pictures, and I really got into monsters at quite an early age. You know, four and five years old, I was looking at my older friend's famous monsters, and I was just intrigued by some of the imagery there, especially the man who laughs. And again, there's pronunciation issues with some of the uh, characters he's played, but I say Caesar, uh, his role in uh, Caligari. But those two images just always stuck with me, and I was lucky enough living uh, in the Chicago area, we had a public uh, PBS station that showed silent films. And so I was able to see The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary at a very early age. It just really grabbed me. And I, as a kid, you know, everybody's, all us monster kids, we were, you know, everybody had their favorite actor. And mine was Conrad Veidt because of those early, you know, images and films. And a lot of that I really a tribute to seeing him in Famous Monsters of Filmland. He was a German actor, and he did a lot of silent films. Most of his work was in the silent days, wasn't it? Yeah, well, he has actually had a pretty good body of work in talkies, but all of his, uh, let's call it horror roles, were in the silent era, made a last being his last one. A- after that film, he said he didn't want to play any more grotesque characters. That was his words. But he did do quite a bit of uh, talking films as well. I mean, he died in 1943. Uh, In 1942, he was in Casablanca as uh, Major Strasser. Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. I was willing to shoot Captain Rano, and I'm willing to shoot you. All right, Major, you asked for it. How much I still love you. I know a good deal more about you than you suspect. I know, for instance, that you're in love with a woman. It's perhaps a strange circumstance that we both should love the same woman. What do you want for Sam? Don't buy and sell human beings. That's too bad. That's Casablanca's leading commodity. 
You can ask any price you want, but you must give me those letters. I tried to reason with you. I tried it. Now I want those letters. And in fact, was the highest paid actor in that film. And if you think about who's in that, Bogart, Peter Lorre, and Sidney Greenstreet, it's uh, kind of an amazing statistic. Wow, no, I had no idea about that. That's pretty amazing, actually, considering Bogart being in that film. Exactly. Wow. But he did a lot, his, his later films, his talking films, when he went to England for a round of films there, and then he came uh, to Hollywood, back to Hollywood, I should say, and uh, he died in Hollywood actually playing golf with his doctor, uh, who could, apparently couldn't save him. But his last number of films, he knew he would be typecast when he came back as a, a Nazi, because this is during World War II. And he, being very anti-Nazi, always uh, requested that all the Nazi roles he played were clearly evil Nazis. He didn't want any sympathetic characters there. So Major Strasser in Casablanca is your typical bad Nazi. <laughs> it sounds like, and, and I don't use the word sounds to create a, a joke or a pun here, but it sounds <laughs> like he made the transition from silent to sound, which is something that a lot of actors did not do during that time. Right, he did. And, and he was very self-conscious of his accent when when talking pictures came about it actually did work to his advantage because he did speak english well like i said he made a lot of films in england uh talkies and then here but usually using that accent as part of the character now you mentioned the man who laughs and i think you know let's go ahead and get this out of there now because i know there's a lot of comic book readers that listen to the show as well is it true the man who laughs inspired the look of the joker that's what i have always heard uh, that bob kane was inspired by the image of conrad Veidt. i mean there's no doubt if you put a picture next to each other that they they look similar. And I've always heard that that was the case. I don't have any proof of that, but I've always heard it and I believe it. It definitely looks like it to me. I was just watching some clips from it before we started recording, actually, just to kind of get it fresh in my memory. And something I didn't know about The Man Who Laughs, was that originally a Cheney Sr. project? There was talk of him playing that role. Man Who Laughs is a universal picture. Right. And at that point, Cheney went to MGM. He was, had made London After Midnight oh, there and okay. some other films. So he was not available to do it. They picked Conrad Veidt based on some of his earlier horror work. And uh, Paul Rennie, the director of that film, worked with Veidt before, particularly in the film Waxworks, where Veidt plays Ivan the Terrible. So it was kind of a combination. Paul Rennie, Conrad Veidt, they both were picked for that film because of their previous work together in Germany. And then Jack Pierce actually created some of the makeup in that. Yeah, he did. He did the makeup effect. The makeup effect, basically, the grin, which is the main thing, was a set of oversized dentures that had little hooks in the corners that drew his mouth up. So it basically created the grin. He couldn't do anything but grin like that. And then the big teeth. And he was could hardly speak in that, you know, the dentures that he was wearing. So... That was one of the reasons, that was right on the sound, silent cusp, The Man Who Laughs. And that was one of the reasons they went and kept it as a silent film. Although they offered a version of it that had sound effects, not only music, but sound effects. And uh, a, a little bit like they're yelling for Gwynplaine in the audience and stuff. And you hear them saying, Gwynplaine, Gwynplaine. But that was one of the reasons they couldn't make it a full talkie. Because with prosthetics and his, the dentures, he couldn't speak properly. See, this is what I'm talking about. You know a heck of a lot more about this guy's work than I do. So, <laughs> well, what's amazing about that film to me too is, uh -huh. you know, it's one. It's a great movie, but so he can't really do anything with his mouth. It's drawn up like that, with you know, being held with little hooks. 
but he expresses so much emotion just with the rest of his face, particularly his eyes, that it's it's just incredible. I mean, to act the whole film that way and really come across and you know you and it's a silent film, so you know that's also more important is the, your expressions and everything. And it's just amazing. It, that to me, it really sums up the, what a great actor he was. Like I said, I was watching a few clips of it this morning before we started recording, and there are a few shots where he actually covers his mouth with his hands, like he's kind of ashamed of the of the face as yes. people are laughing and mocking, and he's still just beaming through his eyes, just just expressing so much through the top half of his face, even though this grotesque kind of trademark look for the film is covered up, he's still giving this this pathos and this this energy. That comes through, and it is a silent film, so you know it's a little exaggerated and melodramatic and such. But sure, it's still a phenomenal acting job. Did he have stage work in his background? Like, how did he come to the films? Yeah, uh, he did have stage work in his background. And again, I think being a silent movie actor, you had you had to be more expressive too. I mean, it just that kind of came with the territory. You know, an, an interesting note too about uh, if I can kind of delve off here just a little bit. The man sure. who laughs, if you think about it, this was like the third film of what I, we call them horror movies. I mean, we certainly grew up in famous monsters and other things, seeing them as horror movies. But first there was The Hunchback in Notre Dame. Then there was The Phantom of the Opera. And then there was The Man Who Laughs. All universal films, all big budget productions, elaborate sets, lots of extras. But really, if you think about it, those characters, Quasimodo, Eric and Wimplane, they're not monsters. They're deformed or disfigured characters. They have no supernatural powers like you know, Dracula or the Wolfman. But yet, we consider them horror films, and especially, I think, you know, the family opera, maybe he's a little more diabolical. But it's just, it's always, I always thought that was interesting, is that they, they really weren't supernatural monsters per se, and they really weren't monsters, but we consider them horror films. That's true, and they didn't necessarily consider them horror films at the time. Though the horror film as a genre hadn't really been defined or spelled out for us at that point in, in terms of Hollywood and film history and that sort of thing. They were kind of thrilling and suspenseful and, and maybe scary stories, but there's really no conception of what a quote-unquote horror movie was at the time. And I think because of that, maybe these films do hold up in a different way than something like Frankenstein or Dracula does because they are just about people who suffered some sort of indignity or disfigurement, that sort of thing. You know, the man who laughs has this terrible origin story for what they were doing to these kids at the beginning of the movie and disfiguring them to put them into, like, a freak show kind of environment, you know, intentionally. I mean, it's terrible to think about. And, and actually, I believe they said they called them compratios. There were actually, that was a practice that was that was real. That's all. Awesome. Uh, they yeah, they would uh, do all kinds of things like that to basically make sideshow kind of uh, exhibits. There's some basis in truth in that. True, true. Well, it's an effective movie. I'm, I've seen The Man Who Laughs, and I think his performance is very strong in that. I think his performance is, I mean, it's iconic and striking in Caligari. The, is it, I think I'm putting the emphasis on the word a little bit differently than you do. Caligari... Yeah, I say Caligari. Okay. Again, when I was growing up and being a fan of all this stuff, there was nobody telling me how to pronounce it. You know what I'm saying? I was reading it in Famous Monsters or in a book. Right. I remember seeing it on TV, and I saw the preview uh, coming up Saturday night. The cabinet of Dr. Caligari is you know, what he said. And that was like the only time I'd ever heard the name spoken You know, at that time, being a kid. So I made 
chew up some of the pronunciations, and I don't speak German, so just uh, I hope the listeners will bear with me on that. Oh, I think it's all <laughs> people who listen to me podcast for years knows that I'm I'm, I'm very uh, good at mispronouncing words every once in a while, especially proper names in another language on my own. So I think it's okay. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> you said that he didn't want to do a lot of grotesque pictures after you know the man who laughs that sort of thing. Do you know what his thoughts were, or did he ever go on record about what his thoughts were about his place in movies like that or Caligari? Well, he one time said something to the effect of that he was very grateful for the cabinet of Dr. Caligari because it introduced him to the world. I mean, it made him uh, well-known. And he realized the importance of that film, not when he was making it so much as afterwards because it was such a iconic film and it really stood up. And I mean, people still talk about that film to this day and and they were still years after it came out while he was still alive. And uh, so I, I think he was grateful having the opportunity to be in that film. And then, of course, he kind of distanced himself from that, and now he was in movies like Casablanca towards the end of his career, that sort of thing. Did right. he come around then? It sounds like he came around and kind of accepted his place. And... Yeah, I don't think he... I just think he didn't want to do that anymore. I don't sure. think he looked back on it with disdain or anything. I just think he didn't want to just be typecast as a, an actor that did that. And his experiences coming over to Hollywood from Germany, you know, it sounds like he distanced himself from you know, the politics and what was happening in Germany and at the time, that sort of thing, by intentionally playing these evil Nazi characters versus a sympathetic Nazi character. Was there any difficulty having the German background in Hollywood during that time? No, there wasn't, just because he was well-established. And the other thing about him that I definitely wanted to to touch on, he was very anti-Nazi. And in fact, when he left Germany, he, he became a British citizen, and donated most of his profits from his films, and he left most of his estate to the British war effort because he wanted wow. the Nazis defeated. It was something he he felt very strongly about. So no question whatsoever about his loyalties. I did not know that. That's amazing. Yes. So, yeah, there was no question about his loyalties, uh, to getting back to your original question there. So, yeah, no transition, no problems moving over to Hollywood. That's great because I know – you know, at that time, especially during the, the rise of the Nazis and that sort of thing, a lot of the German films were not necessarily shown. <laughs> yes, and, and, right. You know, I understand, you know, the, the climate in the country, that sort of thing. Even films that might have been produced before everything that happened did not get the same kind of uh, play. We, we're talking about The Man Who Laughs. We're talking about Caligari. What are some of the other... Well, let's, let's talk about his silent films. What are some of the other silent films that you'd recommend people check out just to kind of see the breadth of his acting? Well, unfortunately, there's many lost films of his. Uh, sure. They did a uh, version of uh, Jekyll and Hyde, which they changed the names of the characters to avoid the copyright issue. And it's called Der Janiskauf, which means the Janus head. And he plays a you know, basically Jekyll and Hyde character. That movie is, is gone. But it's funny because when I was a kid, not having the internet or anything, trying to get information about his films like that, you know, there's like one blurry photo in a, in a book at the, the library. And now on the internet, they've got all kinds of, there's all kinds of stills survived of that film. And it's neat that you have that. Now I can see so many things that I couldn't when I was a kid. But as far as films I would recommend of his in the silent era, Waxworks is definitely a biggie. Uh, he plays Ivan the Terrible in that. That's a great film, and that is available. That is a great silent movie of his that has survived. I'm not overly familiar with that film. It's from 1924, and is it, again, kind of a 
well, proto-horror film, or what kind of film is that? Yeah, it, it is a kind of a proto-horror film. I, I really believe, you know, we were talking about the horror movies and and things before. I believe that Dr. Caligari was really the first horror film. I think that's, you know, there's a lot of people that would agree to that. As far as mm-hmm. horror films go, I think that kind of was the first one. Okay, so I'm looking at the timeline here. I've got the Internet Movie Database up on my screen. So I'm looking at the timeline. Caligari was 20, so it's been four years before Rax works. Uh, the Hands of Orlock, that's also kind of a horror-ish kind of tor- story as well, directed by the same guy, right, that did Caligari? Right. Yes, exactly. And there's a couple of great stills I've seen of that, and I certainly, uh, Mad Love uh, was sort of the remake of that. Uh, right. Peter Lorre. But, no, I've never seen that film, and I, I'm not sure that it exists. And that's a shame. It's so unfortunate that so many of these movies, you know, back then don't survive now. And I don't know if it's because they were viewed as kind of a lowbrow entertainment, they were kind of disposable or what, but it's so unfortunate because you see a movie like Caligari, you see a movie like The Man Who Laughs, and you, you get enthralled by the acting of this man, of, of Vite, and it would have been wonderful to see him in many more films. Oh, I agree. I agree. I mean, if you look, you're looking at the Internet Movie Database, there's plenty of those films that they were romantic or, or non-horror, non-dark. He played a lot of straight parts. He was not strictly a horror-type actor, even in the early days. What are some non-genre or non-horror-type movies you'd recommend that you've seen? I mean, again, knowing that a lot of them aren't available anymore. Right. The Thief of Baghdad is a great film. <laughs> with us on a ship of adventure to meet the Thief of Baghdad in that ancient land of mystery, romance, thrills, and excitement. Baghdad, city of magic. Baghdad, where breathtaking miracles leap before your eyes. (laughs) There was a rich and powerful king in Baghdad, and there was a lovable little thief. Leave your palace, go among your people, mix with the crowds. Then fate threw together the powerful king and the little thief on the road to strange adventures. No man has ever seen her, nor shall, till her father gives her in marriage. that you found me, how long will you stay? To the end of time. With the Thief of Baghdad, producer Alexander Corda takes you on a magic carpet to the seven wonders of the world of entertainment. The murderous dancing doll, the amazing flying horse, the giant genie, the temple of light, home of the mysterious goddess, and the all-seeing eye. Filmed in Technicolor, The Thief of Baghdad presents Sabu, star of Elephant Boy and Drums, as the lovable little thief. Comrade Bite, international star of stage and screen. June Dupre, the sensation of Four Feathers. John Justin, newest court of discovery. And Rex Ingram as the giant genie. That'll be merciful. It's a real genie. Yes, he's mine. 
I'm his master. <laughs> Alexander Corda brings you spectacular new thrills in the miracle picture of all time, The Thief of Baghdad. That's one I'd recommend seeing. Casablanca, obviously. I, oh, I don't sure. know if anybody hasn't seen that movie, so uh, I guess that's not one to really recommend. Uh, <laughs> there's a great... Red Skelton did some films where he played this character called The Fox, and he was sort of like a radio guy that kind of stumbled on almost like a kind of an amateur detective and whistling in the dark is a good one that Connor invites in of, of that series. I'm not, I don't, that's the only one I've seen in the series. So I'm not, I don't know much about it, but uh, that movie was, was very funny. Bites the typical, you know, German heavy in that, but uh, it's a good movie. Say, this is a nifty way to travel. Have you boys had a lot of experience? We have. With coffins. Oh, good. What? the fox. Open that door. You'll never take me alive. Very well, then I'll shoot the lock in. You've just heard another thrilling drama by the master brain of murder, the fox, who creates and solves each of these perfect crimes himself. Uh, there's a certain gentleman who is in our way, Mr. Benton. We wish to, shall we say, eliminate him. We are relying on the fox to devise the perfect method. You mean you want me to kill somebody on the level? No, you just do the thinking. We'll do the work. Expect me to dream up this murder? Aren't you wrestling somewhere tonight? Open that thing and tell him to let us in. I don't think that's such a good idea. Why not? He's liable to do it. Go ahead, darling. We're not afraid, are we? Oh, now, don't get me wrong. It's not that I'm afraid, because I am. having a hard time reconciling in my brain Caesar and Red Skelton in a movie together. Yeah, I know. That is weird, isn't it? Well, he was sort of skeletal in... Uh... Yeah, I'm sorry, that's a bad pun. It's about, that's, that's where my brain was going, so it's okay. <laughs> you mentioned The Thief of Baghdad. I have not seen this version of the film. I'm looking at it here. This looks amazing. Yeah, it really, the effects from the time are amazing. It's an entertaining movie. Looks like Criterion put it out not too long ago. I think I'll have to add that to my Amazon wish list. That looks great. Well, it's unfortunate, again, you know, we were talking about how a lot of these movies were lost. Uh, fortunately, we have some excellent examples, at least in the horror or proto-horror field, of some of the films that he had produced or was involved with. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, how did he get involved with that one? I'm not sure exactly how he was brought to the film. I, I mm -hmm. couldn't tell you that. But like I said, I, I believe that that is the, really the first horror film, in my mind, that is. And one of the things, growing up as a monster kid, that I loved, because 
there wasn't a lot available on, you know, if you, you were a Boris Karloff fan, there was all kinds of stuff on him, or a Bela Lugosi fan. And, and, and I like those guys, too, of course. But as a counter bike fan, you didn't have a whole lot of printed material to look at. But every encyclopedia, and, you know, in school, your school library, they had several sets. If you looked up under motion pictures, there'd be a picture of the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari because it was such a groundbreaking film. And I always thought that was cool. And anytime I would see a new encyclopedia, I'd have to go to the motion picture section of that and, and make sure, yep, there it is. You know, it was, that, <laughs> so that was kind of neat. <laughs> Did you ever get into like little arguments with with your friends growing up? You know, who's a better oh, actor, Lon Chaney Jr. All, or all the time. My, one of a real good buddy of mine, his favorite actor for some reason, was, I mean, not that he was a bad actor, but was Glenn Strange. Okay. And we used to have heated debates about who was better Henry Vider Glenn Strange. I, I believe I, I won that argument eventually. <laughs> well, you're on Monster Kid Radio and he's not, so there you go. Yes, right. Uh huh, John. <laughs> well, we had Paul on the show a while back, and you know he's a huge Lon Chaney Jr. fan. I mean, he even oh, produced yeah. a fanzine growing up. Did you ever do anything like that with Conrad? Yes, Bike? I did. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Paul started out with a fanzine called Lonnie Jr. about uh-huh. Lon Chaney Jr. Obviously, and uh, he also ended up doing one called Fright Monsters, just about monsters in general. And he called this group of magazines Macabre Publications. Well. My buddy Scott Merkel and I put out a fanzine, Conrad, and it focused on Conrad Bite, but it also had a lot of just regular monster stuff in it. And then another friend of Paul's, John Scott, uh, put out The Many Faces of Price, and then we even had another guy from the East Coast who got involved, and he was doing a Wolves and Werewolves. Uh, Jimmy Waters was his name. So there was actually five fanzines under the Macabre Publication uh, banner there for a while. But yeah, ours was about, it was called Conrad. You remember how many issues you did? We did 14 issues. And then wow. we did, like, years later, we did sort of a, a revival one-time issue. So it was all uh, mimeographed. We were pretty young, so it wasn't uh, probably the highest quality, but it was fun to do. And you know, we had maybe 10 people that subscribed, which we thought was a pretty good circulation. Well, that's pretty cool. Kids putting together a fanzine about a, an actor from these German silent films. Well, yeah, that's – I would have subscribed. I'm just saying. <laughs> wish I wish I had known you back then. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Do any issues still exist? Do you have a copy at home somewhere? I've got a couple of copies at home. The the thing with mimeographed is it didn't hold up real well over time. You know, they sort of faded. They had a great smell, though. If you recall from school, you know how your old test used to be on that mimeograph, that purple ink. But yeah, so I've got a couple of copies, but uh, I don't have them all. So you did this fanzine celebrating this actor. And then have you been a writer then from that point on? I know you co-wrote with Paul on right. Frankenstein. What What is your background these days? What do you do now? Well, actually, to go back a little bit, too, Yeah. at the same time we were doing that fanzine, we also became, uh, you know, super eight filmmakers, as a lot of monster uh, kids did. And, and it was Vite Productions, of course. So we made uh, a couple of Vite-related films. We made The Return of Dr. Caligari. And The Man Who Laughs Meets Dracula. That was exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask, do these films still exist anywhere? Yes, they do. I, oh. I still have them. Nice. I, I just recently put the early ones, which those are, on uh, DVD. But uh, they're just for fun to watch. But yeah, The Man Who Laughs Meets Dracula, that was uh, an interesting concept. Who, who won? Actually, The Man Who Laughs did. Oh. 
Well, of course, it's Conrad Miller, Mike evil. Productions, right? Yeah, well, there you right, go. And he's, and he's not evil. Yeah, of course, it's Mike Productions. And <laughs> to this day, I don't do film anymore, but we uh, write and act in and produce our own old-time radio shows, and it's Vite Radio Theater. Uh, my buddy Scott Merkel, who uh, did Conrad with me, we're still buddies, and uh, now we do Vite Radio Theater. So, and they don't really feature any Conrad Vite things, it's just using the name, but uh, because of the fact that we use it for our film, we, when we went to radio, we brought that over. Is that something that you're still doing today, that people might be able to listen to? Right, radio theater, yes, we do. And you know what? We don't have it online or anything like that, but one of the people that participates with us is uh, looking into getting it where you can like podcast it. Maybe one day they'll be out there. We've got two volumes that we've finished. We're getting ready to work on the third. We wrote all the scripts, and we're getting ready to uh, record it. And, in fact, one of the we have a horror series called uh, Lurking in the Shadows, and one of the stories that's going to be on this new volume is The Laughing Man. And it's not about the man who laughs. But it's a tribute to that sort of, you know, that the title, that concept. That was my follow-up question: is whether or not you had anything related to either Vite or anything kind of spooky or whatever. And it sounds like there is some of that there, at least. Oh, absolutely. We're, we're big on the spooky shows. We also yeah. do some comedy and things like that. But old-time radio for me was listening to WBBM Mystery Theater at ten o'clock every night here in the Chicago area. Not supposed to be up that late, listening to it real quiet and getting the heck scared out of me <laughs> so radio is very effective for the scariness because you're, it's theater of the mind and you're picturing these things in your head and uh you can get pretty spooked out so we have a lot of fun with that you know it's fascinating to me because we're talking about old-time radio right now where it's very effective on, on the spooky scale you know for horror stories monster stories things like that yet it's a medium in which one sense is removed there's no sight and now we're talking about these silent films as well, and there's no sound, but still they're so effective. And I think that speaks to the, I don't know if genius is too big of a word here for this, but it speaks to the skill of the storytellers being able to tell these stories with one of these senses removed. That's an excellent point. You're, you're absolutely right. I, mean, I couldn't say it better myself. That's that's very true. As far as like the old time radio theater, your 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 right radio theater, if that ever goes online anywhere, please let me know because I'd love to listen to it and let our listeners know where they can listen to it as well. It sounds fascinating. Oh, thanks. I absolutely will do that. You betcha. I was introduced to Greg through former Monster Kid radio guest Paul McComas, who Actually, now that I think about it, we need to get back on the show here to miss him. Anyway, when he was introduced to me, I was told that Greg was this expert on Conrad Veidt. Now, Greg was very humble. It's like, I, I'm not an expert. I just know a lot about it. You know what? As far as I'm concerned, Greg was an expert. I was taking so many notes and learned so much talking to Greg. I didn't really know a heck of a lot about Conrad Veidt. I didn't realize his importance, especially with The Man Who Laughs. Not just in terms of, well, I mean, Batman and comic books and the Joker, but in terms of silent horror dumb. I always considered Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame as two of the big silent horror films. The Man Who Laughs, so I never really gave it the same attention or respect. And now I want to go back and watch that movie and 
excited to. So, Greg, thank you for introducing me to that, sharing your information and your knowledge and your passion with us here on Monster Kid Radio. And I can't wait to share with the guys and gals listening our conversation about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari in the next episode coming out here in a couple of days. If you have anything that you want to share with us here on Monster Kid Radio, mention it before. I'll mention it again. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. Again, that's all available over at monsterkidradio.net. So here in a couple of days, we'll have some more music from the Alder Kings. We're going to have more with Greg. We're going to have more with the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And we'll talk about our Patreon campaign. Until then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song... Volcanica, because that belongs to the Alder Kings. You can find out more about them over at thealderkings.com or buy the song for yourself on the EP Who Goes There. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, talk to everybody in a couple of days. <laughs>